As I read this brief text preparing the sermon for this Sunday, the first Sunday of the new church year, the first Sunday of Advent, it seemed that three words kept coming to the surface, words that I wonder if we might not put at the center of our Advent postures and practices in this coming year. And those words are thankfulness, love, and holiness. I think that each of these words build on the others and that all three of them together describe the shape of the kingdom being born in us and among us the contours of that realm of Christ for which we long and give voice to this Advent. Thankfulness, love, and holiness. Advent is a season when we reflect on the coming of Christ, not only or even primarily at Christmas, but at the end when God consummates the kingdom of Christ among us when Christ gives birth to the world in the world the intention of God what God intended from the beginning becomes real among us and so we light candles and we pray prayers and we sing songs of longing and anticipation and hope Because Advent is a time when we dare to name that Christ is coming, that the kingdom is coming, and that we can live by its gathering light right now. We can live now as if that day were already here in full completeness. And so I wonder what such a life looks like living in the light of the coming day. It has to look like, to my way of thinking, at the very least, a life of thankfulness, a life of love, and a life of holiness. A little context for 1 Thessalonians. It's believed to be the oldest piece of writing in our New Testament. It's believed to be the first letter that Paul penned to any church. And he wrote it to a a young church in the Greek city of Thessalonica, which was in Paul's time a bustling center of Greek and Roman commercial and intellectual life. Paul goes to Thessalonica after a period of time in the city of Philippi where he ends up imprisoned for a period of time. When he gets to Thessalonica, he's not treated much better. And like most Greco-Roman cities of that time, Thessalonica was filled with statues to the Greek gods and also to the Roman Caesars. And Paul condemns all of that as idolatry. And doing so lands him, as you might expect, in some hot water. He must uh, leave Thessalonica the same way he did Philippi, in a hurry. 
And in doing so, he leaves this young and vulnerable church to what could be a harrowing fate. So after he leaves, he becomes concerned. So concerned for that church, not only for what might happen to them, but for how they might respond to what happens to them. Will they keep the faith in the midst of so much pressure to conform? He's so concerned that he sends his trusted friend and colleague, Timothy, to check on the church. And the letter we have in front of us this morning is written as a response to Timothy's return to Paul and the report that he gives Paul about what's happening at the church in Thessalonica. What he reports is a church that, though vulnerable and endangered and deeply countercultural, it is a church that has remained faithful. It has remained in the fold. It continues to abound in love, in thanksgiving, in holiness. And it is the faithfulness of the church that causes Paul's heart to fill with overflowing gratitude. Paul's expression of thanksgiving is posed as a rhetorical question. How can we thank God enough? How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we feel because of you? Can you feel the, the love and, and the genuine tenderness that Paul feels for this congregation? And the answer is obvious. They can never thank God enough. They can never thank God enough. There aren't enough words to give thanksgiving to God. Have you ever said something like that? Have you ever said, words fail me to say? Have you ever said, it is difficult for me to express? What are we saying when we say something like that? that our response to the grace we have received will always fall short. There just aren't enough words to account for such grace, such gifts, the magnitude of what God is doing through the Thessalonian Christians, the magnitude of what God is doing through us. There, is just no, there aren't enough words. Words fail me. That's what Paul says here. That the overflowing gratitude in our hearts feels insufficient to the moment or the person, or in this case, the congregation. It's a gift to stand in such a space. Don't you know that? A gift. To be the recipient of such gifts, such grace. And so inadequate as it may be, as much as words fail, respond we must. Because thankfulness is a posture of the kingdom. Perhaps the primary posture of the kingdom. And we can live now in the light of that coming day by living thankful lives.
lives of gratitude. Fred Craddock famously said, and you've heard me quote it before, I have never known a person who was grateful, who was at the same time small or mean or bitter or greedy or selfish or took any pleasure in anybody else's pain. Never. Now the key phrase in that sentence is, at the same time. I have never known a person grateful who was at the same time small or mean or bitter or petty. It seems to me that the invitation of Advent is to place ourselves in the light of this coming kingdom, this coming day, when we will live in that grateful space all the time and live by it right now by God's grace. Paul asks the rhetorical question, how can we thank God enough for you? In those words, Paul invites the Thessalonians and us to an Advent perspective that views one another and life itself as a gift and views it through the lens of deep and abiding gratitude. Diana Butler Bass, in a chapter of her book, Grateful, called Habits of Gratitude, quotes Melody Beattie, Gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It makes sense of our past, brings peace for today, and creates a vision for tomorrow. What might it look like if we took each week of Advent and intentionally identified those people in our church or in our lives or both for whom we would voice the same question as Paul and find a way to ask it of them? How can I thank God enough for you in return for all the joy I feel because of you. If we took each week of Advent to practice that gratitude with one another, surely the church, the world, would begin to awaken to Christ's Advent if we cultivated such habits of gratitude. Such gratitude comes as a result of love, of course. And the expression of it, such gratitude, is a a form of love. From the beginning of the church in its earliest expressions here in Thessalonians, love lies at the heart of the Christian understanding of God and of our community with one another. Paul says, I long to see you face to face. Nothing can replace gatherings like this where we are face to face because that's where love is most profoundly expressed. I long, Paul says, to see you face to face so that the love they have for one another may find its full expression 
and so that their faith may be strengthened. And he pronounces a blessing. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. The love Paul has for them is not a sentimental feeling. It has been forged in common persecution, in the pain that they shared alongside each other, in the acts of care that they've been engaged with concretely for one another. I was in an assisted living facility a number of weeks ago to visit one of our members. And I had to wait out in the hallway outside the door uh, for a while as the person was finishing up a procedure. And coming down the hall, at first I heard voices, and then I saw an older woman on a, walking with a walker and a younger woman who it became clear later was her daughter. They were walking very, very slowly and talking with each other. And it was pretty clear that the mother was suffering from some form of dementia. As even in that short walk that I overheard, there were lots of repeated statements. But there was something so tender in the way the daughter spoke to her mother that there was a, it was obvious there was a rich and abundant well of love there on her part for her mother. And at first, I have to admit, it made me sad. I thought, here is all of this love being given expression to. And her mother is not really able, at least on the surface of things, to receive it in the way that she once did or to respond to it or to even remember it. And it made me sad. But as they made their way slowly by, and I saw again the the obvious love of her daughter and tender care in the words that were spoken, I remembered words that I read long ago. The author of them I've long since forgotten, but I've not forgotten the words. No act of love is ever wasted. Those were the words. No act of love is ever wasted. They are all taken up into the heart of God, who is the author and finisher of all our love. And then I did remember something Tom Long said when reflecting on his own experience of caring for his mother in just such a facility and seeing all the acts of love that he saw there. And he wrote these words. He said, these things, these kinds of things are, of course, family obligations and everyday deeds of support. But when we see them in the light of the new day dawning, he said, we see something more. We realize that what we see in bright lights at the end, the victorious mercy and kindness of God, is even now breaking forth, adventing 
into the shadows of this time and place through these loving acts of care. These everyday acts of mercy are being gathered up into the ultimate victory of God in Christ. And because of that, he said, they matter eternally. So none of them are missed. None of them are forgotten. God sees. God remembers. God gathers them up. As Paul will say elsewhere in the letter to the Corinthians, faith, hope, and love abide these three. And the greatest of these is love. He writes those words as a reminder that when Christ comes and establishes his realm, we will finally see as never before that it was love, these acts of love that mattered above all else. All the things we owned, all the successes we shared, all the degrees we earned, all the accolades that came our way. All of it in the end, all of it passes away, except these three, faith, hope, and love. It is this radical view of love which results in holiness. Paul's final prayer for them is that their hearts will be strengthened in holiness. To be holy is to be set apart, to be set apart from the world, to be distinct. It is, I think, what Jesus means when he says, you, the church, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. To live in the light of the coming day with gratitude and love, not love for some, but love for all, is to live distinctly, counterculturally, It is to love and and live in a way that brings life and light to the world right now, not just in the future. Deep and abounding gratitude, radical love, leading to lives set apart, distinct, holy. These are the marks of Advent. This is the posture Paul prays we can live out of right now. This is the deepest hope of the earth. It is the ultimate truth of Advent, of course, that we cannot do these things or live this way or stand in this posture apart from God's grace, which does in us what we cannot do in ourselves and which we pray for, as Paul would say, earnestly, this Advent. And so this is our prayer in all of its fullness. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.